You ever seen the movie Contagion with Matt Damon and Gwyneth Paltrow? I haven't. Troy Smith had a piece the other day about how even though that movie is from 2011, it's back in the top 10 on iTunes because of the China coronavirus. That virus is increasingly getting into people's heads. Including yours. You're driving us all nuts, dreaming up angles on this story. And more coming, rest assured. I think by about a month from now, this will be the biggest story going, if not earlier. And we will talk about that here in a moment. So let's get started. Welcome back to a new episode of This Week in the CLE, the podcast discussion of the news by the most talented news team in Ohio, the reporters and editors at Cleveland.com. I'm Chris Quinn, editor here at Cleveland.com, and I'm with co-host Laura Johnston, who soon will be in the land of Mickey Mouse. Hopefully feeling better than I do right now. (laughs) Are you nervous at all about getting on a plane with the flu and the coronavirus running rampant? Did you get a flu shot? We all have our flu shots. However, we do not have masks, uh, which I hear is uh, de rigueur on a plane right now. But since every time we go on vacation, we all seem to end up at urgent care. I've packed children's Tylenol and antibiotic ointment and that stuff that prevents swimmer's ear. So hopefully we are all set. Well, come back safely. We'll have a guest co-host when you're away, but you have to promise to come back. Oh, I'm coming back, hopefully with a tan. All right, let's get Jane Cahoon and talk about the coronavirus. Welcome back to the podcast, Jane. Are you up to date on your flu shot? I am. Well, as we know from all the reporting our team has been doing, the flu shot will not protect you from the China coronavirus if it starts spreading here. Neither will wearing a mask, it turns out, although I still have a hard time believing that. And we might need to start thinking about such things in Ohio, Jane, because we might have a couple of cases of this rapidly spreading virus in the state. Yes, there are two Miami University students who recently went to China and are experiencing flu-like symptoms, and we are awaiting tests from the Centers for Disease Control to see if this is coronavirus or it's just flu or something else. They're not in the hospital, though, correct? Correct. They are not. So it's not not dire, I guess. The case has all the signs of a public health um, threat, though, that experts say to be on the lookout for. People who just traveled to China who are showing flu-like symptoms. We're being told at the moment that the risk of getting this thing is really low in Ohio unless you've recently been to China or exposed to someone who has. I just want to say that the timing of Laura having a cold <laughs> while talking about this story could not be more perfect. You, you want to talk about kind of the subliminal message when somebody is completely clogged up talking about this virus, it's going to resonate. I have not been to China. I have not been in contact with anyone from China. If this isn't a month and Chris is right and we're we're all freaking out, then I'd be quarantined. I would be like, stay home. We are so happy about that since we're in this little room having our conversation right now. The phone will pick up the germs. <laughs> well, anyway, these two two students, one is a China native, and they, since they've been back, health officials tell us they have had very limited contact with people. They know exactly who they had contact with, and they are being they're at home. And they're monitoring their symptoms. And look, if they don't have it, 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 it seems pretty likely this is going to get around. I'll say it before Laura says it again. I've been on fire for this story all week. Uh, I, I do think that this is likely going to continue to spread. I say that because of how little we know, mostly because the Chinese are not being very honest about what's happening there. We do know that in the three weeks since this first came out with warnings, more people have contracted it than had SARS back in 2008. 
And and when American <laughs> health experts look at it, they're using words like, yes, I'm surprised by how rapidly spreading uh, this is. So, you know, there's also some reason to believe that you could have it for a while before you have symptoms. I'm kind of amazed that we have 6,000 people with it and we can't say that definitively yet. You would think we would have figured it out. But if you had this for four or five days without knowing it, you would infect a lot of people. That's a game changer on how fast it could spread. We do know it's spreading from person to person. I saw the thing in Germany, one person infected four others. So it has big time potential. If you, if you take how far it has spread over the last three weeks, project that forward, look out. Yes, Chris. And we also have health <laughs> officials repeatedly saying people should not panic. They're, the much bigger threat right now is the flu, which is why the flu shot is important. Um, that's killed more than 8,000 people in this country since October. Um, Jane, what is the health uh, department saying about people should do about the coronavirus? Well, it's kind of the usual uh, virus prevention things that people do. Wash your hands a lot. Uh, don't sneeze on people. You know, don't come to work. If you're sick, <laughs> practice sneeze etiquette, you know, sneeze into your elbow. Yeah, that's now. We'll see what the advice is in three weeks. Laura, you handled a story with my favorite headline of the week, Should I Be Freaking Out? It was a piece with a bunch of questions and answers about this virus. One was about how masks people wear on the airplanes really won't protect you. What were some of the other highlights of those questions and answers? I learned loads from researching and editing this story. For example, you can have the coronavirus from 2 to 14 days before you start to show symptoms, according to the CDC. And Chinese officials say you can spread the disease before you know you have it, although... We haven't confirmed that in the United States yet. Oh, and Purell won't necessarily work. So do not rely on hand sanitizers. And Jane, I should point out that Jeremy Pelzer in our Columbus Bureau was the first in the state to break the story about a potential case in Ohio. Yay, Jeremy. Way to go, Jeremy. That was a big get. Uh, His colleague in Columbus did a piece looking at what colleges are doing. I mean, it was kind of a surprise when the Miami University folks and the public health folks said, yeah, they, the, the two students, they didn't really have much interaction with anybody. It was a small group. And you're thinking, it's a college campus. How does anybody have interaction <laughs> with just a small group? So what are colleges doing? Because they could be a big incubator if this thing breaks out. Well, they are addressing it. They've sent emails to faculty, staff, and students. You know, colleges are a much more international place. They have students from overseas, and they are telling them, if you have been to China, you know, watch your symptoms for 14 days. And if you experience anything, you know, act on it. But don't go walking into the health center <laughs> because you could be Infect spreading it. You know, call first. Yeah. What, what's striking about, about all of the, the official responses on this is everybody is talking about right now. And of course, right now, there's very limited ways that anybody in America can be exposed to this. But, but they're almost trying to get reporters not to look ahead. I mean, okay, right now, nothing. But if it starts to break out, what does it look like? I mean, it's going to be much more than hand washing, right? If this were to spread here like it spread in Wuhan, all of our actions and advice would change quickly. Laura, you found that federal site that advises people facing a pandemic to lay in a two-week supply of food. So... If you're looking down the road, at some point you go from you should wash your hands to you should lay in a two-week supply of food. What is that point of, of where, where it switches over? I, I don't know that anybody has figured out the point yet, but obviously it's it's when there's going to be a lot more cases here. Um, 
the other things they said to recommend were um, having enough of your regular prescription drugs on hand, as well as basic over-the-counter meds, because the last thing you want to do when you feel like crap is to go buy everything you need. <laughs> so have your pain relievers and cough and cold medicines. You can do the stuff we should all do anyway, like get plenty of sleep, exercise, drink lots of fluids, eat healthy foods. I, there are not really any mind-blowing uh, pieces of advice here. I, you know, I lived in Florida for nine years, which means we had no end of hurricane warnings. Every time those things popped up, you had to check. And there were several kinds of people. There were those who always had in their garage or somewhere in their house a supply of food and flashlights and batteries and water. And then there were those who, as it was 12 hours away, would scramble, go to the grocery stores and scream because the, the shelves were empty. I'll be interested to see if something like that develops here, if the virus does spread. You know, right now it's off by, uh, by Cuba and it may hit us or may not. But, but if it starts to look like it's going to hit, you know, like Laura said, simple matters like prescriptions get kind of important if everything's going to shut down for a while. Yeah, it'll be crazy if we get to the point where there's no milk left at the grocery store or if schools start closing because so many kids are sick. Now, speaking of prescriptions, let's talk medical marijuana. <laughs> One of the most right. fun stories of the week was a Laura Hancock interview with that guy who thinks being a Bengals or a Browns fan should qualify you for medical marijuana. Yes, this is a gentleman from Cincinnati, long-suffering, reluctant Bengals fan, who, when the state was accepting requests late last year for conditions that should be added to the list of conditions that qual would qualify for medical marijuana treatment, he submitted an application saying Bengals and Browns fans should should have access to this. And I, I get that he said he was only half kidding, but I'm going to make a pun here. The medical board had to take this as half-baked, correct? <laughs> well, you know, when Laura talked to him, he said he was, he was only kind of half-serious, but he, he pointed out how, you know, Monday morning people drag into work and they're so bummed out. This, would, this could really help. But... You know, I mean, honestly, this is a this is a serious process. And this guy told her he spent 15 minutes on the application. So, you know, and that they ask you for scientific evidence. And he's like, happy smiles or um, well, no playoff appearances was, you know, what his scientific evidence for why this should be granted. I loved when he listed as an answer to a question, the experts on this illness <laughs> of, of being a Browns or Bengals fan, and he what, what what did he list? He said he cited the entire populations of Cuyahoga and Hamilton counties as you know the experts I mean, on this. Spread to the suburbs, you could do all of Ohio, right? <laughs> Um, on a more serious note, we have state legislators who suddenly seem worried about the pension system serving public employees. So what's up with that? Well, there are a couple of lawmakers on both sides of the aisle who are working on legislation that would give more oversight over the pension boards. Uh, everything from capping advisor fees, more transparency with their uh, whatever they do, the business that they do, and even capping pay raises for employees of the pension funds. I think one of the state lawmakers thinks they're paid too much. And they say they're looking out for retirees who worked very hard and, and put their money into this, and they need to be protected. Hmm. The pensions are run by boards that presumably are working to keep them solvent. Um, but is there fear that they're somehow going broke? Well, there there's a lot at play here. I mean, they, they have done some recent cuts to health care and cost of living and so forth. But, 
you know, they're a little concerned about the global economy and what's going to happen with that. Healthcare costs are going up and people are living longer. So there is a concern about the solvency of these funds. Lastly, Jane, Chief Political Writer Seth Richardson is in Iowa. Why would an Ohio political writer be in <laughs> Iowa? Well, Chris, funny you should mention that. Uh, we're, we are uh, covering the Iowa caucuses, the first in the nation vote on the presidency, which is important in and of itself. But also, as you may know, Seth is the author of our flyover newsletter, our free newsletter that you can sign up for at cleveland.com slash newsletters. This covers all the important issues in what we have labeled as the flyover states, or perhaps other people have. Uh, but we, we embrace that because of their importance in the 2020 election. I should point out, too, that uh, we have a second representative there in Paul Clark. Paul Clark's the very well-known former head of PNC in Cleveland, really well-known for all of the phil- the philanthropical causes that he got behind. And he and his wife were crossing things off their bucket list, and he reached out. He said, we've always wanted to go to the Iowa caucuses, you know, and it would be cool if I did it as uh, under the auspices of the press. Is there anything... I could write for you guys. And I thought, well, you know, all these people know Paul Clark. <laughs> it's a stranger in a strange land. So sure, let's let's make him our representative and get the non, you know, political writer's look, get the kind of the regular person that's been hearing about these for his whole life. Um, see what he what he thinks. And he's already, it sounds like, turning in some cool stuff. So it'll be interesting to see what Paul brings us this right. week. Right. Great guy. Good stuff. Thank you. I bet Chris uh disagrees but i hope that today is the last time we have to talk about coronavirus (laughs) excuse me i have to go wash my hands now (laughs) in a moment we'll talk about some changes for cleveland city council you're listening to this week in the cle we're bringing in city hall reporter bob higgs welcome back bob hi Cleveland voters will decide March 17th whether to reduce city council from 17 members to nine and cut their salaries from more than $80,000 a year to 58000 Recently, some influential people have come out blasting the idea. So who are they? Well, you can start with the mayor who's put up a couple of videos on the city site now talking about how this will damage representation. It'll weaken council. It'll hurt residents ultimately taking their voice away. Uh, our columnist Brent Larkin, who weighs in on political matters, came out forcefully against it, saying it's revenge motivated. Um, last week, uh, you started seeing notes from Norm Edwards, who uh, represents a, a black contractors group and carries a lot of influence, and he came out forcefully against it, too. Well, here's a spoiler. Our editorial board will blast this idea this weekend, advocating very strongly for a solid no vote on both Bob, take a minute to view this from the resident standpoint. Um, you, know, you know, we've talked about this is you're reducing your voice on council. We talked about this with you a couple weeks ago or last week, that, that you're going to go from having, you know, a, a, a much more specific representation to another. What reason could there be for a voter, a resident, to vote for this, to reduce the council? Skip the money thing. Why would I want to reduce that? How does that benefit me as a city resident? That's there's not a lot of things you can pin down. You might find residents who are frustrated over one thing or another who think, all right, this is my way to lash out and and fight back. But so change, even if it works against my interest. Right. Exactly. But but reality is it probably doesn't help you in the long run because 
you reduce the council, it means your council of representatives is going to have twice the constituents they have now. And that's what we talked about before in a previous episode, that the purpose of council is to be that bridge between the people and city government. And reducing the number of council members would mean voters would have less representation. Each council member represents about 25,000 residents of Cleveland now, correct? How would that change under this plan? Well, um, we looked at 2018 census as we were starting to sort this out. Uh, it breaks down to about 43,000 per ward. You've got nine wards on the east side. You'd probably have to go down to five. You've got the others, uh, eight on the west side. Well, actually, two of them straddle the river. But you'd have to cut out about half on each side. So instead of nine wards representing pieces like Glenville and Collinwood and uh, Buckeye, you'd have four wards that would stretch all the way from Shaker Square, in some cases, to perhaps downtown, and all those people lumped into one large geographic area with one representative who's stretched way thinner. Well, one thing that's interesting about that is right now, even with the reduction from originally 33 to 21 to 17, they, they represent pretty much uh, the same interests worldwide, right? Across mm-hmm. the, you don't have a lot of places where it stretches so big that you have groups of people you represent that have opposing interests. But when you get this big, if they stretch out this big, you know, you could have somebody that's representing the economic development potential university circle versus something else that's competing to be to, to get into the economic development game. And you're you're going to have to pick. I mean, this 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 will make it very difficult to represent, I think, people in this town right now. uh you can look at most of these wards and see that they're representing neighborhood pockets. Mm-hmm. Cleveland has these neighborhoods all over the city that have are cohesive units. Right. So Mike Polensic is based in Collinwood. He grew up in Collinwood. He knows Collinwood. Uh, Kevin Conwell is based in Glenville, and that's the heart of his ward. These things would be much, much broader. And So what about the pay issue? Why do Jackson and others say cutting the pay is a bad idea? City council jobs are full-time jobs. There's a lot of people out there who keep saying they're part-timers, they're way overpaid, but the state of Ohio recognizes them as full-time positions for benefits and pension. And and these guys, the ones who do it right, do work full-time. And the fear is if you cut from the 83 down to 58, you're going to have trouble drawing people either who are – invested in the job enough to be able to do the full-time work or who have the skills because they can command higher wages in the private sector and are unwilling to take the pay cut. Several people on council make less money as members of council than they could in the private sector. Oh, there's some make way more than they would ever get in the private sector. But look, look, what they do make seems high. I mean, 80,000 plus for that job does seem high, but 58,000 is way too low. I mean, the, the people who put this on the ballot, they they went too low to make this make sense. If you if you start paying them $58,000, it does seem like you're going to cut the quality of the council member and for the voter, there's no in between. They they don't get no. to say no, we'd rather pay him 70, which would feel kind of more appropriate. It's either leave it where it is at the 80,000 plus or cut them down to the 58,000 and possibly likely get worse service and the way the the issue is written it's not like if you got to 58 and realize it's a problem you could change it quickly 
because it also limits how much you can elevate it. So you couldn't get back up to, say, 72 or something like that uh, very fast. It would take a, at least a decade to get there. Okay. Whether change or not comes to the size of the council, we'll have to wait for March. But one big change is for sure. Donna Brady is leading council. She's been around so long that Chris covered her in his previous life as a city hall reporter. She had the third longest tenure on council. Uh, she'd been there since the 90s. She was appointed and took office in 99. And then I think she told me she'd succeeded to be elected six times or something like that over that period. Wow. Yeah, she has been around a long time, as has her husband, the, the county council president, Dan Brady. So what does she have to show for all that time in council? She, well, there's, there's two kinds of people on council. There, there are policy people and there are constituent service people. You won't see someone like a Dona Brady, who's a constituent service person, writing marijuana policy for changing laws in the city of Cleveland. Uh, her colleagues, one of them told me privately and then said publicly on the floor, if I wasn't a council member voting for myself, I would want you as my council member. And it's because of that constituent services. And the one thing that several of them praise is she wasn't afraid to go after bars that were nuisance bars. And she took down like 20 bars in the time she was there. And that's hard to do because you have to go get their liquor license revoked at the state level. But, but Matt Zone, when you look back over his career, you can look at that whole Detroit district that, that has, you know, was bombed out storefronts when he took office and he had the vision for turning it into this, this pretty successful district and it's been remarkably successful. Um, and, and you can look at other council members who've, who've really launched some big projects. Does she have anything that would be similar to that? Not big stuff like that. The kinds of things she can point to, uh, her ward has the only ice rink that the city has. In the last year, they just redid it again. They've replaced all of the, the surface, and it provides hockey programs for kids who would not be able to afford it otherwise. Uh, they have youth leagues. They have figure skating training. That's one of the things she always likes to talk about. She learned to skate there herself. Uh, you've got gazebos in parks, new ball diamonds, but you don't have anything like you have along the Battery Park area in Zones War where you have massive growth in housing. So who's going to replace Dona? She is nominating a guy named Brian Mooney. Right now he works with the Westtown Community Development Corporation, uh, he's an attorney. Uh, his job in that is to deal with quality of life issues uh, and work with as a go-between with the city. Previous to that, he worked under both Rich Cordray and Mike DeWine with the Ohio Attorney General's Office as one of their staff lawyers. And this is that warp system where when a council member departs midterm, they pick their successor, then they have to rerun for it. But it's just it's bizarre because it, it doesn't give people the immediate chance to run. It, it kind of locks things in. There's been a lot of criticism over the years. One more, Bob. Cleveland is permanently out of the Cuyahoga County bag ban. Yep. They have, they, they balked at it. They opted out in December, and it now appears they're not going back in. They're going to go their own way. Well, what's interesting, when Kevin Kelly came in to talk about this, and, and he acknowledged this this criticism when we lodged it, that that he and his council really didn't communicate with the county council. And you know, he partly blamed the county council that if you're going to do this, you should do what Kevin has done with, with lead and some other things where he gets all of the different people that have a stake in the process together to talk it through. 
Um, and he said he would do that. Once they pulled themselves out of the bag ban, they would study whether or not the bag ban would hurt city grocers and push them out of town. But he did say when he met with us that he intended to bring everybody together and to talk to the county. Sounds like there wasn't a whole lot of that going on. They've just decided they talked to the mayor, they talked to the grocers, and they see another way to go here, and they're just not going to participate. I, I think that's it. They don't. One of the things Kelly has objected to all along is he doesn't think eliminating plastic bags is by themselves is the way to approach the problem. That, no, that he, was a fundamental objection he had. and But he wants to do a fee for paper right. and plastic bags as the alternative. And um, that would solve one of his issues. He didn't want grocers to be punished. Uh, so paper we're going to punish bag, residents. Yeah, well, paper bags are much more expensive, and his fear was, I mean, Cleveland, quite quite honestly, being a grocer in Cleveland is not easy. The big ones have pulled out for the most part because they can't make enough money doing right. it. Right, the city subsidizes right. them at substantial sums of money. Uh, and, and that's why he was concerned about the, the paper bags are double the cost or more of the plastic bags. But I don't think it can be really helpful to retailers to be like, oh, you have to follow this rule here in this part of the county, and in Cleveland it's a different one. And I don't think we're making it very easy for the retailers to figure out how to serve this population. Um, if we're talking about business interests, then I don't think it's very helpful. And in the county's defense, and I, I do see that, you know, it came close to the 11th hour and then all of a sudden, you know, all of these you know, problems the were being... The county did a terrible job in, in the way they rolled this out in their collaboration, even though it was a well-meaning but thing. But years ago, when I covered the county, uh, Councilwoman Sunny Simon had floated the idea of a bag charge. And they ultimately decided against it because it was... Um, hugely controversial plastic firms spent money to fight it and the idea was you didn't want to charge people um a fee for these bags and so i feel like they they looked at it they disregarded it they said it's not going to work and now cleveland's going there so how are they going to address those same issues uh they may still have the fights with the the plastic folks but where they're landing is we we have to do something to keep it from punishing the businesses themselves and and that's they're, uh, why they're going into okay, it. Okay, but but let's face it. A huge portion of this city is in poverty. How how does council reconcile putting that charge on people in poverty to protect the grocer? I mean, what, for people that are in poverty, they're going to have to spend money now to get the bags? Well, it's, that's one of the things they're still working on. They don't have everything nailed down with this yet, obviously. But when I talked to Kelly about that, specific issue he said well we we can't punish the poor maybe we have to put in something like if you're a snap recipient a food stamp recipient you're exempt from the fees or something like that and he also wanted to get rid of some of the loopholes that are in it the county's uh ordinance would exempt delivered groceries and he's like what what's the point of that you're trying to get rid of single use mm -hmm. so just because someone's bringing it to your doorstep it why shouldn't the plastic bag bags? There's like be grocery or um, dry cleaning is exempt and takeout food. Right. And so, I, I mean, this is an ongoing issue with a lot of different ways to attack it. And plastic bags are just one part of it. And so it's going to be interesting to see just, you know, when people get used to the idea of what else, what else changes. I don't know. Um, thanks for coming by, Bob. I'm glad to. Thanks. Coming up, a fascinating look at what's behind the high number of children who are prosecuted as adults in Cuyahoga County. It's another provocative conversation on This Week in the CLE. Here come reporters Corey Schaefer and Courtney Astolfi. Welcome back, guys. Hello. Hello. 
All right, you'll both have plenty to say about the very strange case of Douglas Dykes. But first, Corey, let's talk about all the kids that the Cuyahoga County prosecutor charges as adults in something called a bind-over. This can get heady, so let's take it in very small bites. This issue comes up because the American Civil Liberties Union said O'Malley does this to too many kids. So explain that. Yeah, so they put out a fact sheet earlier in October that said, um, you know, going back into the early 2000s, there were lots of kids across the state getting bound over as adults. Uh, Some advocates raised some alarms about this, and there were some changes in the law to try to reduce that number and keep more kids in juvenile court. The numbers went down. Uh, and ever since uh, O'Malley's been in office, the numbers have started rising back up, and now they're back to where they were in the pre-reform days. Um, you know, Cuyahoga County's always been binding over more children as adults than any other county in the state, basically since forever. Um, you know, the higher crime rate than anywhere else and, and all that stuff. Um, but, and now it's the ACLU's contention is that um, there's just there's too many kids, that, and there, we should try to keep as many kids in juvenile court as possible. And based on the numbers alone, it seems like there's been some sort of change in policy to, to send more kids to adult court. We talked about this before. We did think that the ACLU report was flawed because they didn't identify anyone they would not have bound over. They talked much more esoterically. O'Malley came in to talk about it last week, and he showed us the background confidentially on the 102 kids they bound over last year. And these guys did some seriously awful things. Can you talk about that a little bit? Uh, Sure, yeah. So in in many cases, it was crimes that you would think adults, you would see in adults, the type of violent behavior, their murder, attempted murder, uh, you know, multiple armed robberies, carjackings, um, all that stuff. And a a lot of the, the... cases had children who had been in the juvenile court before a bunch of times. And that's part of the reason when they decide whether or not to bind over is if they've been given the chance before and they still continue to do, you know, more escalatingly violent crimes. Um, And that's, you know, by the time that it gets to be where the prosecutor's office is considering binding, binding you over, um, you know, it's typically not the first time that you've been involved in the the criminal justice system or uh, it's some sort of murder or, you know, crime like that. All right. So the ACLU's larger point without getting into the specifics of these kids is they're still kids. They should be treated as kids. The purpose of juvenile court, the whole reason we created it more than a century ago was to acknowledge that you can reform kids and get them into a better life. By the time O'Malley is binding them over, they've done really awful stuff that would be hard to handle in juvenile court, according to the prosecutor. Let's put all that aside. What struck me was that when you look at each of these kids, most of them had records that put them in front of a juvenile court judge repeatedly for lesser stuff long before there was an adult court adjudication. That would seem to say that juvenile court, which was created for errant kids, is failing. What did O'Malley and the team he brought over say about that? Uh, yeah, so it is hard uh, to to deal with cases like this because you do want to try to keep as many kids in juvenile court as possible. Um, you know, these are, like you said, these are kids that have, have gone through the system that's supposed to help them, and there's really hasn't been any... Um, tracking or anything like that they the prosecutor's office and the juvenile court did work together uh to come up with an intervention center 
um, a year ago. A so year ago. We can't so tell. There's it's no long-term that. data as to how effective that but, is but, now. But stop. But stop. So, so I'm I'm a juvenile court judge, and I get a kid for shoplifting, nonviolent. He stole something at a store, right? Comes before me, and I look at the kid. I look at his record. And I'm supposed to do something that gets him nudged back into the straight and narrow. That kid comes back before me because judges generally keep these kids. Once you, the kid is before you once, you keep track of them. It's one of the ways to correct them. This time, you know, it's, an, it's a burglary or an armed burglary. He's gotten more serious. So what I did the first time clearly didn't nudge him back to the straight and narrow. I need to be more intensive in what I'm doing. They're supposed to be delivering services, something that, that gets these kids to, to behave. Clearly, in these 102 kids, not happening. Um, O'Malley wasn't able to tell us that they said that there wasn't anything that tracks the successes. So maybe there's a thousand kids that they did that it worked and they never committed another crime. They can't tell us that. But what's kind of striking, I think, is they couldn't tell us whether any of these things the judges do work. They don't know what had been done to these kids in the past to correct them. So they don't know what had failed. So, so is this just a gigantic indictment of the juvenile court process? I think you could easily make that argument. Not only the process, uh, is, it, is it failing more kids now than it was five years ago? Is it, has it gotten worse? Are, are the crimes getting escalating, more escalatingly violent? Uh, and also the tracking, the lack of tracking. I mean, there's, there, there's nowhere to easily find you know, the court doesn't keep statistics out there for anyone to easily find, you know, the recidivism rate for these programs, how even like anecdotal success stories, they're, they're, they're nowhere out there to be found. So it's, you know, you can always say the squeaky wheel gets the grease, but no one's paying attention to the other three wheels, I well, guess. We're about to invest huge amounts of money in say yes to education. And the whole philosophy of that is track the kids notice where they're failing and provide them the services that fixes them. And you've got, you know, how many kids go through the juvenile detention center every year that are just waving gigantic red flags saying, I need help, I need help. And we're not providing the right services there, Laura. Um, we're going to do a deep dive into this program and see if we can figure it out. Overall, Corey, O'Malley came over to make the case that the ACLU criticism of him for bindovers was superficial and unfair. Do you think he made that case? Um. I, I think he I think he definitely went further um, in in bringing over the the cases and and the numbers and everything, but I do still think that it's just a philosophical disagreement between um, between Michael Malley and the ACLU and people that subscribe to either you know you have to be tough when kids cross the line or we should keep kids in juvenile court as long as possible and i think there's just a philosophical disagreement and i don't i don't know that people who subscribe to the aclu's thoughts are going to have their minds changed by that i do think the aclu should have said of these 102 cases here's 20 we think that could have been treated differently because when you look at these individually it's for, I mean, it, you know, look, it's half of them or almost half of them, it's kind of automatic, right? If, if, if you're in the juvenile detention facility, the state runs and the state sends a note over saying this kid's like causing trouble here, please bind them over. You're going to bind them over. If the kid's been bound over before and convicted, you got to bind them over again. Yeah. And there's other automatic bind overs. So, so of the other half, which ones does the ACLU think not? Because O'Malley's sitting there going, well, he shot at somebody. That's attempted murder. If you shoot at somebody, you're trying to kill him. 
okay, you could argue no. You know, you're just a stupid kid that doesn't know what you're doing with a gun, and maybe not. But the ACLU didn't do that, and it does it does feel cheap that you're going to lodge this criticism without saying, here's the path forward we think we could have taken with 20% of these kids and made the number align more with other other counties. And they you, you've asked them about that, and they haven't done it. Yeah, there's been no like case-by-case breakdown. All right, let's get to the Douglas Dykes conversation. He's the county human resources chief who was indicted a year ago on a felony theft count for giving an inappropriate bonus to a job recruit. We've talked at length on numerous podcasts about how how unusual this case is, in parts because Dykes didn't get anything out of the case. So there's no need to go get back into that. What we want to talk about is what he recently did. Yeah, so this this took, I think, literally everybody by surprise. Indeed it did. <laughs> um, so, so you know, the, this whole idea that, that Doug doled out this bonus when he didn't have permission to do that, you know, the, this money is at the center of that, of, of the whole case, and it's kind of hanging out there. The guy, well, Explain what he did. So they were trying to bring in, in an IT, uh, you know, official, not, not the head of IT, but a guy below, um, to come in and, and help out with some projects. He lived no, 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 in- no, no, skip that. So he gave a bonus that was inappropriate. What did he do that we're all marveling at? So apparently he paid the money back quietly, didn't tell anybody he was going to do it. Uh, he paid it via a cashier's check. And the, the it, so it's not like a regular check. I, I've never seen a cashier's check, so I didn't know what these things look like. I'm not a banker guy, so I don't well, know. Well, the, the, but, but a cashier's, unlike a personal check, when I write you a personal check, the money comes out of my account when you cash the check. Right. With a cashier's check, basically, the money's loaded on that check. It's it's already out of your account, and it, it almost works like money. Um, uh, and, it's and, backed by the bank, and, and they can right. like immediately, the bank, immediately cash it, and it goes in directly. Your name and address isn't on it like a personal check, yeah. although there is a line on the check oftentimes that says who it's from. Right. What did he do with that? Uh, so that's called the remitter, and on the remitter's line on this check was the name of the IT official who's been paying the money back hundred dollars at a hundred and fifty some dollars at a time. The recruit month. that he gave that bonus to. Yeah. So it looks to the person just looking at the check, it looks like it came from the recruit. That's odd. If for no other reason than for the fact that he, that Doug Dykes gave away one of the few bargaining chits he had with prosecutors unilaterally paying it back, gave up his leverage to work a deal with prosecutors where they would say, okay, we'll cut you a deal, but you have to pay this money because the county has to be made whole. And he, he just wrote it. But the more important thing he did is he provided a check to the county, making it look like it was from someone else. That's a deception. That's basically a lie that he did to the county that employs him, a county where he was a cabinet member of the county executive Armin Budish. Yeah, uh, and and that's what I think they the prosecutors have subpoenaed records from the from the bank and from uh, the county to try to figure out how this happened. Um, you know, he's basically saying. Back we reported, you know, he almost reached a deal, a plea deal, a couple times before. He'd always like agreed to pay the money back as part of whatever deal that was. Um, so he's saying, you know, I've always agreed to pay the money back. I just wanted to try to do this um, to, I don't know if, I don't, it's hard to figure out what he was thinking. If it was going to make the case go away, if it would just all be put behind him. 
Um, yeah, I mean, he didn't even tell the guy he recruited that he was doing this. Yeah, and that's the, when the prosecutor said in court that he found out when he got an email from the HR department saying, hey, your balance has been paid off in full. And, and I, it's just, it, it's, mind, it's mind-blowing. This could not make less sense. I mean, there's no way he could make his deception stand because prosecutors have subpoena power. Once this money was paid back, they were going to figure it out. It's not... It's not a possibility. It was a certainty he was going to be found out as the guy. So that's dumb idea number one. Dumb idea number two is lying to your employer. This is an employer who had stood by him despite his felony indictment. I mean, he could have gone to Budish and said, look, I'm paying this off. Budish would have said, what, are you stupid? And, And maybe given him some sense, but it was dumb. Dumb idea number three is giving away the leverage for the deal. Like I said... And I, I guess dumb idea number four was not consulting with his attorney before he paid the money back because he said he had no idea that Dykes did this until after the fact. Yeah, there's a lot of things that don't make sense. Um, and, and, and that's what they're going to try to figure out. Was this a guy who just got, who's been backed into a corner and is feeling overwhelmed and is running out of money, paying for all of his attorney fees? Well, and, now he and, has $10,000 And less. now he has 10 less thousand. Yeah, exactly. So... Is that it? Was it? Was there something possibly? Was was this? I mean, the recruit is going to end up being a witness in the case, and was there some? Was that some sort of part of it that they're trying to figure out? It, it, it is really just like it, I, it caught everybody by surprise and just added more fuel to. I respect your 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 mental gymnastics trying to bring sense to this, but <laughs> it's not working. All right, Courtney. This led to immediate speculation about whether Dykes could keep his job. County Executive Armin Budish has stood by him, keeping him on the job for the after the indictment because he believed the charges were unfair. But we wondered how Budish could keep standing by him after such deception. Yeah, and we, we put that question to the county after this all came to light last week. And the only response we got from the county is... We have a meeting with Doug on Monday morning, and then Monday morning hit, and we get this news saying he quit. He said he wasn't quitting because he thought he'd done anything wrong. He was quitting for um, the health and sanity of his family that they had to come first. Any idea whether this was a resign or be fired thing, or did he really just come to the realization his position was untenable? He couldn't stay at the county after this deception. I mean, I think there's a lot of speculation around the resign or be fired thing. We asked the administration what their conversations with him was like on Monday and preceding that. They won't, they won't, they're not going to shed light on, on what those conversations looked like. He was making $180,000 a year. So, so now he has to pay his lawyers, which everybody's been telling us he's having a hard time doing. He, he had a really good salary. And he had 10000 in the bank, apparently, and now he's got none of that, and he's still facing trial. When does that start, Corey, in April? Uh, yeah, the last pretrial is March, and then the date is in April. Uh, it, it is another head-scratcher, and Courtney has even one more from the county. The Buddhist administration has screwed up yet again. I can't even begin to count the inept mistakes this administration has made. And the sad thing about this one is it harms workers who are not making a lot of money. Yeah, so we learned that the Human Resources Department had applied um, a lower health insurance premium rate, the year prior's lower rate, to a bunch of workers in the Public Works Department. We're talking mailroom clerks, custodians, landscapers. So they're not making bank like Doug was. Um, (laughs) (laughs) and, And the county undercharged them for all of last year, so now it's 
taking that money out of all of their checks this year to, to make up the difference from what they undercharged them last year. You know, with all the changes to the tax code under Trump, I'm betting these workers likely did not question why their checks last year were were ahead of where they were. Or maybe they, they were the same as where they were because they were getting the same deduction as the year before. So I'm betting that the janitors and the landscapers and others hadn't put a lot of money away because they don't make a lot of money. This is like a pay cut, a, a fairly significant pay cut when you're talking 40 bucks every two, two weeks. Since this was a bonehead mistake by the county, was there any thought by the county council to just eat it instead of penalizing these workers? Yeah, I don't think county council's pleased about this this issue, and I wouldn't be surprised if we saw some kind of action there. We haven't seen anything yet, but wouldn't surprise me. It wouldn't cost much, you know. I mean, they're not making a whole lot, but it would sure make the workers feel like they're not getting penalized. Right. It's a conversation of how you treat your team. Like fairness. The county's talking out of both sides of its mouth on this one. They told you it was human error. And with the workers, they blamed yet another computer malfunction. You know, it it was explained to me that maybe those two aren't mutually exclusive. If it, I'm guessing, you know, if it was a computer error, should a human have caught it at some point? Uh, But it just shows. Hey, what's going on with the county computers? (laughs) I mean, earlier this month, they were telling us their computers couldn't do basic subtraction to send out the balance due notices on property tax bills that they screwed up and they're more recent screwed up. When is somebody over there going to take responsibility for this stuff? Well, you know, we haven't seen any action in that category yet. The person who oversaw benefits and compensation in HR, she was a director and she did oversee this piece of things and she was named to take the place of Doug Dykes in the interim. So now she's running the department. So she got promoted. For the time being. What's her title right now? She's interim HR chief. Okay, so her not not inter- chief talent officer anymore? Yeah, so when Doug was there, he was called chief talent officer. Chief of staff Bill Mason sent out a memo to county employees yesterday saying they're changing the title, and it's now going to be Chief Human Resource Officer. Okay, just when you think the news from the county can't get weirder, it just keeps doing that. Thanks for your thoughts, Corey and Courtney. Thank you. Thanks. You're listening to This Week in the CLE. Pete, you're back. Good to see you. Good to be here. We have three stories to talk with you about, and we might as well start with your favorite. I know this is your favorite. What do you think of free public transit? Well, I think it's a very interesting idea. I think it's something that people should think about um the, we we wrote about it or i wrote about it along with mary kilpatrick uh, uh about two weeks ago because they're doing it in kansas city it's the first major city to establish free public transit and uh they're uh they the kansas city council uh resolved to do it 13 uh, to nothing vote uh and uh they hope to have it in place in six months whereby uh, all the uh, riders of the buses in Kansas City will not have to pay the dollar fifty fare. So this came up at Cleveland Rising, as you know, because you covered it. It was one of the game-changing ideas that some people floated at that three-day event in October, designed to imagine a prosperous future for Greater Cleveland. How does free transit help a region prosper? What are they hoping to gain in in Kansas City? Well, there's there's a few things. First of all. They collect about $8 million a year in fares, and that contributes to, I think, about 8% of their transit budget. Well, their feeling is if that $8 million remained in somebody's pocket 
and they spent it in other ways, that would have a multiplier effect, and, and it would increase the uh, the uh, it would it would stimulate the economy to the tune of up to seventeen million dollars. So you would you, what it would do is a lot of people who low income folks, for example, who uh, uh, maybe shell out five hundred to a thousand dollars a year to ride a bus, they could use that money to put food on their table to do other things. So it's kind of a it's an it's a it's a social uh, equity issue. Number one, number two, they they think maybe it could also increase some ridership. And uh, uh, stimulate some other uh, uh, economic development. One problem with this is it involves existing public transit, meaning that people would get free rides only to where buses and trains go right now. It doesn't go to enough places. Would we be better off just subsidizing Uber or Lyft so that people could get directly to where they want to go and save enormous amounts of time on transfers and bus changes? Well, I, you know, theoretically, I guess that could work, but Uber and Lyft are private companies. You know, so you'd be subsidizing private for-profit companies to provide a service that a lot of people, or some people at least, feel should be uh, akin to public schools or public libraries, something that's almost a, a, a right or a priv- as, as opposed to a privilege. So, uh, I mean, that, that it's worth thinking. You know, all this out-of-the-box thinking is what we need to do. But I think that if you design a system that uh, that's, uh, serves the job centers and then you provide it uh, at, a, at a discount price or perhaps for free, I think that's probably the way people would, uh, communities would think about going. All right, it's interesting that we're talking about making RTA free when its budget is upside down and the board over there is thinking about asking for a tax increase. They can't pay the bills when collecting fares. How can they make it free? Segway alert, taxes are at the center of our next discussion. The Greater Cleveland Partnership which raised the alarm last year on the proliferation of local taxes and said it was going to give new ones a hard look, came out and endorsed a proposed tax increase for the health and human services in Cuyahoga County. How come? Well, they endorsed it, number one, because they were able to get some of their concerns allayed through conversations with uh, County Executive Budish and his administration. GCP is worried that, as you say, taxes are getting out of hand, so they feel like, number one, if they're going to endorse an increase, which this one is, they want to know that the money is being spent as wisely as possible. The, as part of this, uh, Akram Boutros, who runs Metro Health, as well as John Corlett, who is with the uh, Center for Community Solutions and is a Medicaid expert, they have both committed to monitor the spending of these HHS programs to make sure that they are getting the, 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 the bang for the buck that is expected. The other thing that's happening is GCP got a commitment from the county to create a task force to look at at uh, look at all taxes, look at government structures, look at regionalization as a means to try and do things uh, more uh, more efficiently, and uh, and that's why GCP said this very this this tax is needed. Plus, it's going for some really good stuff. So, does the GCP endorsement mean much to voters? I think it does. I did a little research over the last 10 years that they endorsed almost all the countywide um, uh, uh, tax issues, all but one. And actually, they were neutral on this one. Port of Cleveland, uh, back in 2012, did not get an issue passed. I think it does mean a lot. Uh, plus, if they're endorsing it, I think some of their members, some of their business members are going to contribute to the campaign. Uh. Um, so, yeah, I think it is meaningful. 
All right. Lastly, Pete, another story dear to your heart. County reform. The court Supre- reform. Sorry. Court reform. The Supreme Court has said it's planned to the legislature, and while it would make the bail system more fair, the court stopped short of taking the big step that we've been advocating for. Well, they took some steps that we've been advocating for right. in terms of getting making bail decisions quicker and um, uh, and making less onerous on folks who can't afford bail. But the one thing I think you're talking about is the inclusion of risk assessment as a factor for determining bail. Mm-hmm. And they had a vote on that, and they voted five to two not to include risk assessment as a factor for judges to consider. Now, it doesn't mean that judges can't do it. It just means they're not endorsing it. I know, it. I, which I really found to be odd because, for you know, we've been doing this bail reform work. You've been key on it for three and a half years now. And we've done a lot on these assessment tools and the success that they've had in places like Toledo and Summit County and other places. And I was just surprised at the opposition. What's changed? Well, a lot has changed. And, and it, this speaks to the evolution of bail reform. You know, this is a relatively new thing. I mean, four or five years and, and a lot of ideas have been thrown out there. You go back to 2017, the, the, the Pretrial Justice Institute was promoting risk assessments as a way to be more equitable with with minority groups and folks who, who, who don't have a lot of money they've come full they've, they've gone 180 now they agree with the uh, ACLU of Ohio which which asserts that these risk assessments are racially biased in other words the information that's used to determine these risk assessments come from arrest records conviction records which by their very nature, they claim are biased because of the over-policing that goes on in a community. So if you're an African-American, you come before a judge, yeah, you're, you're probably more likely to have an arrest record because you've, in a community, that's more likely to be over-policed. Mm-hmm. So what is the response from people who like the assessment tool? Uh, well, here locally, they're full speed ahead. Cleveland Municipal Courts had tremendous success, they say, with, with the risk assessment and with uh, some supplementary pretrial services that they use. County Common Police Court is on course to start embracing the, the municipal court's uh, bail determinations uh, real quickly. Municipal court does misdemeanors, but they also do bail determinations for felony suspects that are then transferred to Common Police Court. Common Police Court can hold their own bail uh, uh, bail hearings, but they're looking to rely more on the municipal court to establish those felony bail determinations. But the basic argument for why they like it is it seems like they're acknowledging it's not perfect, but it's far better than what we were doing before. Right. And uh, two Supreme Court just, uh, judges, uh, the, the Chief Justice Maureen O'Connor and Michael Donnelly, who used to be at the Cuyahoga County uh, Common Police Court, both say that they feel that, that risk assessments have been far more helpful to minorities and low-income uh, low folks than they have actually working worked against them got it all right well thank you pete come back soon i will as long as it's free and there's no risk (laughs) in a moment cleveland.com sports editor dave campbell tells us if it's safe to start getting excited about the browns again i'm betting no it's this week in the cle we're closing out today's podcast with dave campbell hi dave hey how's it going so last year's Brown season may have been the most disappointing ever, which is saying a lot in this town, because expectations were so high and the team had talent, but they kept messing up game after game. And after the season, they got rid of their front office staff and seemed to start over. Now they have a clean slate, new leadership. So can you tell us who they are? 
Sure. Well, the most recent hire was Andrew Barry. He's the new general manager, and um, he comes in from the Eagles. He's a Harvard graduate. The Browns actually have an all Ivy League set up right now. Yeah. So, um, but anyway, he was with the Eagles, and actually, he worked here for Sashi Brown when Sashi Brown was um, in charge of picking the players and everything. The Browns have always been high on Andrew Barry. Um, they think that he's a great mix of a football guy who also believes in analytics and they've been keeping their eye on him and they've been really, um, trying to get him back in here. They had a wide pool of candidates, but he was, he was who they ended up with. So he's going to pair with Kevin Stefanski, the coach that they hired earlier this month. Um, Kevin is, is kind of, um, this cut from the same cloth a little bit. He comes more from the football end. Andrew played at Harvard, was an all Ivy league defensive back there. Kevin is, you know, has been coaching, but he also is a big believer in analytics. So they're hoping that this new setup will work. And we know how many times the Ivy League teams have been to the national championship. <laughs> so, so why should a Browns fan be excited? What makes this different from all the excitement from a year ago? Yeah, so it's funny. I was thinking. Do you remember that uh, Adam Sandler, Drew Barrymore movie called Blended, where they go to they bring each bring their families to Jamaica? It, it, this is like what the Browns were. They had two different factions that hated each other. And, you know, there was an analytics faction and the football, old-time football people faction, and they hated each other. They would look at each other funny in the hallways. So now they've got, like, this blended thing going where they, they brought in two guys who believe in both. Andrew Barry's a football player who buys into analytics, and Kevin Stefanski is a football coach who buys into analytics. So instead of having two different factions trying to blend together, they've actually got guys who believe in both things. And I think that's why the Haslam's think, Haslam's think that this is going to work. Oh, I thought you were going to say the Drew Barrymore, Adam Sandler movie, uh, 51st Dates, where she has amnesia <laughs> like every singer. day. You have to do it all over again, which I kind of feel like this Browns that, conversation that's the way Browns is. Browns fans feel, yeah. But uh, quarterback Baker Mayfield showed all sorts of promise in 2018, was among the worst in 2019. Do the new coach and GM have any history of helping a player like Baker? Yeah, so Kevin Stefanski has been a, kind of a quarterback whisperer for, for many years. He, he was with the Vikings for you know more than a decade, and his most recent um, quarterback was Kirk Cousins. People had big questions about Kirk Cousins when he left from Washington and went to Minnesota. They made him so efficient. They tailored the offense around him. And Ellis Williams from our staff has written a little bit about this. Freddie Kitchens would call one play, and then he would pick another play out of a hat and call another. There was there was no plan, but there was no kind of concert behind the plays. It was just kind of random play here. We need a running play. Kevin Stefanski, and and we've written about this. Ellis has and done it done it really well. Is it, there's kind of a, a strategy, or it, it kind of all meshes together, where one play sets up another, and they kind of work together. And I think that's what the Browns saw in Kevin Stefanski, is that he can get his quarterback in positions and then use different formations and different play actions to get the quarterback in a good spot. The biggest problem last year, I think, was, or one of the biggest problems, was the utter lack of discipline. That first game where they, what, matched their record, all-time record for penalties, players who were being criticized for not investing 100%. I mean, they were pretty much a mess. Is the new front office focused on on discipline, getting more in the style of what they do in New England than the wild antics we had here? Yeah, and I think uh, Kevin Stefanski talked about this at his introductory press conference. He says, personality is welcome, but productivity is required. And he's going to come in here, and he's not going to put up with any of this stuff. It's going to be interesting how he handles some of these personalities on the team and whether he can hold them to that standard. There, there's a lot of personality on the team, and the production hasn't been there. So I think that's going to be one of the first things he's going to look at. I'm glad Johnny Manziel isn't here anymore. But um, is the test of that discipline the Kareem Hunt case? And what's going to happen there? 
Yeah, that's going to be really interesting to watch because, um, you know, Kareem Hunt had a great second half of the season. He was suspended for the first eight games last year for um, a couple of altercations that he had had coming out of Kansas City. One involved a woman, came into the second half of this year, had a great second half of the season, got pulled over speeding in Rocky River. He was doing 77 and a 60. They found marijuana and a bottle of vodka in his car, and he was on a zero-tolerance policy under the old regime with John Dorsey. So how does Kevin Stefanski feel about this? Is he thinking, he and Andrew Barry thinking they should give him a second chance or just this will blow over, he's a good person? Like They're going to have to sit down and talk to him and work through it. It's going to be really interesting to see oh, what happens. Hello, if your message is about discipline, this is your test case. If you, if you don't take the hard line, then the message might be you're, you're not. When Dorsey came, everybody hailed him as the longtime football guy who built a great team in Kansas City. And on Sunday, they were playing in the Super Bowl, so Dorsey was bona fide. Now everyone in hindsight says Dorsey was a bum. I mean, it was amazing. Everybody came out of the woodwork and had nothing good to say about him. How do we know that a year from now we won't be looking back on these guys that we're now all saying, oh, well, we could have alignment. They're all working together and saying they're totally dysfunctional. I mean, that's kind of what the history, if you go back on 20 years of history, we can most assuredly say we'll be doing that in a year. Well, you never know. I mean, John Dorsey, uh, he there's 11 players from the Chiefs that John Dorsey was was responsible for bringing in. Uh, Tyreek Hill, their speedy wide receiver. He, he drafted Travis Kelsey, the Cleveland Heights uh, native, who's their big tight end. Patrick Mahomes, their star quarterback. Those were all John Dorsey guys. But in Cleveland, John Dorsey, he had some misses. I mean, let's be honest. He took Baker Mayfield number one, but that was kind of the consensus pick. But if you look at it, Denzel Ward, uh, a Northeast Ohio kid who he had a great rookie season, was has been injured, very inconsistent since then. He was the number four pick in the draft. The uh, Odell Beckham Jr. deal hasn't worked out as well. You know, the first year was not a huge success. Although, although you could make an argument that's not on Dorsey, that's on that lack of discipline. I mean, Mary Kay was writing in, in the training camp those got the the baker and he didn't seem to be gelling and nobody did anything to fix it i mean they should have sent him off to build a church in south america or something to get them to work together well that was part of it but who <laughs> hired the coach who didn't have the i mean it was well, john right. dorsey's call to hire that coach so you have to put that at john well, dorsey's or was feet it too. baker mayfield's call to pick the coach those guys were tight i don't know i i it's hard it's hard to criticize dorsey for odell beckham jr that guy is a bona fide stud and you know the fact that he did not have a great season is that on Dorsey or is that on more kitchens? And yeah, the I was just using that as an example. Like the jury is still out. Like that was not a home run. Um, and the same thing, Austin Corbett. Uh, Dorsey took a, an offensive lineman named Austin Corbett with like the 34th pick in the draft early in the second round, and he's gone already. They they decided he was not. He was supposed to be the heir apparent to Joe Thomas, and it hasn't worked out. So you know, John Dorsey's had kind of a hit or miss legacy here in Cleveland. It's you're right. There is some things still to be seen in terms of whether they work out or not but um it, it hasn't been a home run so far i love the sports analogy from one sport to discuss the <laughs> Mix, other sport. mixing metaphors sorry. Uh, but thanks for coming by to talk about the browns dave no audience on cleveland.com is bigger than the browns fans and some of us <laughs> need some help keeping up anytime glad to be here okay laura just you and me to close out the episode again what part of the conversation moved you today I cannot stop marveling at the county administration. Every time you think it can't get weirder or more dysfunctional, it just another story that you're like, I did not see that one coming. Yeah, I, I know. It's almost like if you go a week without one, you're feeling exposed. I can't get enough information about the China coronavirus. This one seems different to me. I think the next few weeks will tell if it's going to hit the whole world. 
you know, we have the potential for, for some very different scenarios by March. In one, the world contains this thing and all is well. In another, people are holed up in their houses like they are in Wuhan in China, bored as can be and hoping not to get sick. So I guess I have one more pandemic tip to add, and that's to make sure you've got a show ready to binge. <laughs> Yeah. So get although, your Netflix queue all ready to go. Although in China, I read a story that they're binging on Chernobyl, which isn't good for the Chinese government because the, the people watching it are comparing what Russia did in Chernobyl to what the Chinese government is doing with this. So Let's hope the long range implications of, of coronavirus are not the same as Chernobyl. Yeah, let's let's indeed hope that. Thanks to Jane, Bob, Courtney, Corey, Pete, and Dave for their insights today. Thank you, Laura, for being a great partner. And thank you to the audience for listening to This Week in the CLE. We'll be back with our bonus episode Saturday about the questions lingering from this week's top news stories. And next Thursday with another full episode. Mm -hmm.